Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the previous episode, I had the pleasure of hosting Tim Ungst, an Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and a trailblazer of digital therapies in the pharmacist community. My guest today is Mike Pace, the CEO and founder of Palm Health Co. Mike helps clients make health technology commercialization and market access success feel more like an amazing beach vacation. Kudos to that. In our conversation today, Mike and I talk about the differences in go-to-market and the commercial pathways for biopharmaceutical compared to prescription digital therapies. We also talk about what we're seeing in the marketplace with some of the early PDT trailblazers and the opportunity within the industry that exists for patient-centric and value-based care. We discuss the conundrum of pricing PDTs, what other countries are leading the way in the industry, and much more. But before we dive in, Mike and I, for obvious reasons, have been in the same digital health circles for many years, but finally got to meet in Boston last year. It was really great to meet Mike face-to-face, and his kind nature that exuded over Zoom for two-plus years proved true in real life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Pace. Mike, welcome to the DTX podcast. Been looking forward to this one. But to our listeners, why don't you tell us who you are, a little bit about your background, what got you to where you are, and let's not forget, I'm asking this for every guest, a small interesting fact about yourself. Well, thank you very much, Eugene, for having me on the podcast. It's certainly a pleasure. She's describing myself. I'm a small town guy. Grew up in a pool, frankly. I'm aspiring to be an orthopedic surgeon and a sports medicine specialist, and That journey went a little sideways and almost took me to Wall Street, but fortunately landed me in healthcare and life sciences and tech. And I started carrying a detail bag for Ewing Marion Kaufman's pharmaceutical startup out of college and subsequently wound up commercializing at three different global biopharma companies, three different digital health startups in three different decades, if you can believe it. And also heading up the value strategy consulting and global pricing market access team at one of the top three CROs. So now I'm bringing together all those learnings and failures and successes too, and bringing those together really for the purpose of advising others and very specifically making market access and commercialization of health tech feel a heck of a lot more like a day at the beach. <laughs> so I founded uh, Palm Health Co. just over a year ago, and that's what we're about, um, is bringing the sum total of that life experience to clients in a meaningful way, to try to put evidence-based health technology in patients' hands and to make a substantial difference in human health. So that's me. I love a day at the beach. <laughs> so do I. So that's for sure. And so making that seem like a day at the beach for your clients sounds like an amazing thing. So just to kind of remind you again, there were a couple of interesting facts already, three different things in three decades. And I would say, because people are listening to this, they can't see you. It's hard to believe because you look like a young man. Thank you, Eugene. <laughs> but please, interesting fact on top of that, anything uh, that to get our listeners? Yeah, I mean... I wish I could say there are a lot of them, but one I'd give you, which may be relevant, is the fact that I've kind of become a decent juggler. And that really started due to my swimming career. And uh, there's a lot of time in between swimming events and a lot of time before swim practice. 
that allowed me to pick up first two balls and then three balls and then four balls and kind of learn how to juggle. And uh, yeah, the funny thing about it is turns out that the physical act of learning how to juggling is paid dividends and kind of the mental act and real professional act of juggling in the professional context. So yeah, I like to juggle. Uh, become pretty handy at it. Fascinating. So when we do a video version of the show, we'll bring you back to do that. Let's not beat around the bush. You're in the market access space and would love for you to just dive right in and let our listeners understand the commercial framework for the reimbursements and market access. And if you can kind of walk us through roughly the last decade of advancements in that in the digital therapeutic market. (laughs) Loaded question, I know. Well, yes, uh, we have little time in our podcast to walk through what many will probably recognize as a rather long and winding road, a rather opaque looking environment, one that is not standardized in any way and really hasn't been kind of comprehensively codified really by anyone, which makes it a bit like the wild, wild west and really dates to the early days of even managed care coming into being in the early 90s, for instance, in the US. So One, market access and reimbursement of digital therapeutics 10 years ago was a non-event. Market access and reimbursement of digital therapeutics has really only come into play as we crossed kind of the 2020 decade mark. That said, certainly there were exceptions to that and early movers in the digital health space had found different market strategies, certainly to pursue various segments and channels in the market, employers and the like, et cetera. But if we bring ourselves up to date and maybe just think for a moment, Eugene, and for your audience, just to think about maybe the last five years and then maybe the last three, one, and maybe the last month, because the speed of change is really accelerating now. And fundamentally, the commercial framework for reimbursement and market access of digital therapeutics, clinically validated digital therapeutics, prescription digital therapeutics, however we want to look at them. The fact of the matter is stakeholders are looking at the framework for market access and reimbursement quite similarly to that that they look at pharmaceuticals today, meaning that demonstrating safety and efficacy or effectiveness in a defined target population. And it's extremely important, but it goes far beyond that because that really looks at kind of causation in a randomized controlled trial environment. And the market is expecting much more than that today. In fact, many would argue, I happen to be one that leans in that direction, that the bar for evidence to support payment coverage, reimbursement market access for these therapeutics is probably a little bit high. Some may argue that it is surpasses actually biopharmaceuticals in some ways. But brass tacks, the framework is kind of simple and then really complex and nuanced at the same time. It's simple from the perspective that stakeholders want to know that these products work. Stakeholders want to know that these products are going to be used. And stakeholders want to know that there's value and patients using them to multiple stakeholders. Sounds pretty easy, and it's far from it because there just is no consistent standard framework for anyone, provider, consumer, patient, regulatory agency, maybe more so, health policy decision maker, not so much, government authorities, clearly not, and very uh, segmented, 
commercial payer decision makers, not so much. So that's essentially what's happening. Now, that said, that sounds kind of dire, but the reality is there's just so much optimism to have, and there's so much progress that has been made thus far. And there's so much demand, frankly, for solutions and solves across every one of those stakeholder sets. I love the positive spin. I'm also a very positive guy. And, you know, having spent some time in pharma, and I kind of always joke around that I lost most of my hair pushing non-molecular therapies to a molecular company. (laughs) I'd love to understand, at least from your perspective, you already alluded to sort of one-side differences between drugs and going to market for PDT and the acceptance. And I agree, I've been hearing the same thing. Like, why are software held up to the same or even higher standard on one side? But can you talk a little bit of the timelines, kind of the drug versus PDT? Yeah, for sure. And I'll avoid the regulatory frame because it's not my area of expertise, but there's certainly differences in the regulatory frame. It's actually one of the reasons why there's such an appetite for digital therapeutics with this apparent ability to develop and commercialize potentially quicker than biopharmaceuticals. However, that said, the commercial pathway is a much more windy road a much less, I should say, directed road. So when we think about market access for drugs, and let's just use the US as an example, every country has its own kind of similarities and differences, right, in this regard. Let's start with the US. So the US infrastructure and foundation for the clinical evaluation, economic evaluation, formulary consideration, determination of medical necessity, the development of medical policy, these things are institutionalized. They are harmonized. They are not opaque at all. They're institutionalized. They are like clockwork, right? There's a date. We make a review. We review things in this consistent way. In fact, we publish it to people so the world knows exactly what we're going to assess, when we're going to assess, how we're going to assess, in some cases, who are actually going to be the assessors. In digital therapeutics, none of those things hold true. None of them. And that makes things very, very complex for any innovator, any developer of this needed technology. And let me give you a real precise example that has held up the industry thus far or at least is a real clear contrast to drugs. So in the United States, the Medicare Modernization Act created a Medicare Part D benefit, right, for Medicaid Medicare beneficiaries. Of course, we'll get into that conversation later because there's initiative afoot to see Medicare cover PDTs as well with a bipartisan bill on Capitol Hill as we speak. But the law makes a difference. Regulatory direction policy and guidance makes a huge difference to health tech. And in this regard, you know, drugs have to be reviewed by third-party payers, by anyone that participates in the Medicare program. There's a requirement that new drugs to market are reviewed by those organizations and disposed, a decision made to cover or not cover, to position those some way. That just doesn't exist for PDTs. So therefore, there's no direction. So when it comes down to a payer decision maker's priority list, their inbox, right? Their to-do list, the set of priorities they come into every Monday morning. Guess what's not on that list? DTX. Unless there's some other need, some other objective, some other strategic initiative afoot that allows for priorities to change and considerations to uh, 
to be moved in one direction versus another. And those are the early adopters, the trailblazers that have adopted digital therapeutics and have done the really, really hard work to get organizations to cover and pay for these products that are important for patients. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Mike Pace, CEO and founder of Palm Health Co., a market access and commercialization consulting company. Mike, you spent some time at Pear. Pear and their peers are making lots of moves and championing and lobbying to a certain extent. There's been quite a lot of press around it, and I think not just because Pear themselves and others like BetterTX went public through the SPAC. Can you dive a little bit deeper on kind of what we've seen in the marketplace with some of the early trailblazers and leaders and some of the efforts that they're making out there in the market? Yeah, Eugene, thanks so much for the question. Because hats off to the early trailblazers, Paratherapeutics, Achilles Interactive, Better Therapeutics, the list goes on. Gosh, what are we at? Nine, 10, 12? Now prescription digital therapeutics authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. And it's not easy, right, to operate in the environment that we've been talking about. So setting the stage for these companies in the U.S., we've got a commercial segment of the business that's unclear, uncertain no requirements to do anything, no standardization, et cetera. That's one thing. The commercial market in the U.S. is half the market. The government-funded system in the U.S., as we know, Medicaid and Medicare is the other half. And in Medicare, and for any digital therapeutics company whose target population is Medicare eligible, by law, Medicare cannot pay for a digital therapeutic or a prescription digital therapeutic. So the only mechanism for market access and reimbursement of digital therapeutics in the U.S. Medicare system is a lot change in law. So certainly that requires constituencies to discuss and ideas to be exchanged and for things to be ultimately put into the legislative sphere. And again, as alluded to earlier, the Access for Prescription Digital Therapeutics Act, which is a bipartisan, bicameral piece of legislation sits on Capitol Hill today and has a substantial and growing base of endorsers, both certainly in the legislative branch, but way beyond that in other branches of government and way beyond that into patient organizations and professional organizations. In fact, the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy is quite supportive of this legislation and has communicated to Capitol Hill as well pharmacy community, one of the most trusted providers in healthcare, wanting to stand up and support digital therapeutic access for Medicaid and Medicare patients. So these lobbying efforts and the early trailblazers and champions that have been building the constituencies, doing the hard work of generating advocacy and support around the idea of this next generation of therapeutics being put in patients' hands Yeah, there's no question. There's been a lot of activity, a lot of good work being done, a lot of good listening being done, but we're not done yet. And there's more to be done. (laughs) Always is. That's health and care industry for all of us, right? Yeah. You know, I want to jump to a buzzword in the industry that I think we've been using for a while called value-based care. I think as an industry, we've been talking about there's some kind of, let's call it early traction. And I was just chatting with somebody and we're kind of like, well, value-based care, it's outcomes, it's measurement of those outcomes, you know, it's seeing true value and reimbursement for that value. 
And it kind of dawned on me as we're doing this DTX podcast, the real world data of digital therapies can help quite significantly in that. Do you see DTX as the industry, as the players, as the products, spearheading, following? I mean, I know there's challenges ahead on commercializing as is. And then do we try to leap ahead as an industry to value-based care? So I'd love your thoughts on it because it's also a commercialization route for the buzzword, right? Yeah, I mean, it's such an important dialogue for all stakeholders to have. I guess one of the things that I try to distinguish in my mind, and certainly with clients we do too, is value-based healthcare as a catch-all term has been very much kind of earmarked in the provider-payer type of relationship, so to speak. Health insurers and healthcare providers getting together to say, hey, there's a better way to do things and a better way to transact in a financial way as we're overseeing the health of a population. Value-based contracting or value-based agreements, on the other hand, have been very much kind of earmarked towards product or solution providers, the pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies or health tech companies, medical device companies, and a lot of leaders in those areas. And I've been fortunate to be a part of many of those leaders that have done some of the first value-based contracts in each of those segments over my time. But the answer on digital therapeutics, digital health is yes, it's in the data. And never before in the history of the world have we been sitting on such a robust asset to be leveraged to improve human health. And health tech developers and prescription digital therapeutics providers really do sit on a wonderful opportunity to collaborate in a really transparent, patient-centered, healthcare system-oriented way in the way they bring their products to market. And many of these organizations are already doing that and have publicly announced some of these agreements. For instance, payers' agreement with Prime Therapeutics is a good example of that. One of the things that's been lacking in biopharmaceutical value-based agreement context is this ability to understand whether or not patients are actually utilizing drugs or biologics in the way they were intended. Are you using them each day and week and month and persisting and adhering to the course of therapy that your doctor's prescribed or it's appropriate for the drug? And are you taking them in the right dose, right? All of these things, all of these things, right? Hey, let's not forget drug issues, not only just drug overdosing, but just um, prescription drug misutilization is a substantial cause of mortality. Let's not forget. So we're trying to get good out of drugs, not the opposite, and they need to be used properly. Well, now we actually have therapeutics, FDA authorized, clinically efficacious, where we can actually now monitor the use in real patients and of one or populations and have a clear look at the use of the product, correlating it with clinical and economic outcomes. And that is really the framework and the basis for value-based agreements between DTX companies and payers that I think will proliferate. Being able to transact financially based on enabling physician-patient engagement, based on having baseline levels of physician use of your DTX, based on, for instance, delivering cost of care results that are beneficial to the healthcare organization or payer or adverse healthcare utilization. Because let's not forget, there's good healthcare utilization and there's bad healthcare utilization. 
So promulgating, promoting the good and seeing more of it and avoiding the bad is what we're all desiring. And we can transact in that way as innovators and as payers. And I think we're going to see more of this, Eugene. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my clinical and commercial partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the chief medical officer and general manager of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Mike. What do you believe is the incremental benefit a digital therapeutic product gains in payment or reimbursement dollars by just labeling itself as a digital therapeutic versus not? Chandana, that's a million-dollar question. (laughs) Thanks for asking that one. Gosh, the answer, I actually think it's pretty simple. And it's the right to play in the world of medical necessity and claims-based reimbursement. In the absence of being a DTX or not, or for instance, acquiring FDA authorization and having the evidence and clinical validation to back it up, those are the table stakes that are really required in order to play in that third-party reimbursed environment. And I'm going to hop in here because this is one of my probably favorite topics as I get asked because people think I'm an expert, even though I'm just here hosting and asking the tough questions you know, what's the channel that we as a, you know, DTX company should go? Is it employer? Is it direct to consumer? Is it prescription? And I say, yes, yes, and yes. Depends on your hypothesis, depends on the use case, the therapeutic area. And I would love to get your understanding from a commercial entry perspective, PDT versus non-prescription into the employer channel specifically. Eugene, super question. I get it often from our clients as well as really the contrast of go-to-market between PDTs and non-PDTs and which channels really are more or less ripe, ready for the particular DTX and not all are created equal at all. So for instance, the value proposition to an employer, the needs to an employer, why in some cases may very well overlap a fully insured health plan, right? Or health insurance company, the large self-insured employer still has you know, consistent needs to manage overall medical spend and trend and manage that medical budget of their employee population well, which of course means keeping people healthy, ideally, and avoiding bad things from happening. But on the other hand, the employer, as opposed to the fully insured health plan, they need to have people be productive at work. They need to show up. They need to be ready to go to work and do things like that. So Priorities may be in some ways different and some ways the same for those two channels and for PDT and non-PDT developers. But one thing I'd suggest would be important to consider is really kind of points of leverage. And I think the industry is gaining in maturity in terms of understanding how the self-insured employer target market can not only be helpful in monetizing DTX on its own with the employer directly, but can actually be a catalyst for third-party claims-based reimbursement upstream with the health insurer that's providing the medical benefit for that employer, as well as even with the PBM, that self-insured employer, that pharmacy benefit manager, is also contracting with to manage the pharmacy costs and the use of pharmaceuticals. So, This bi-directional influencing dynamic that exists across the supply chain is really, really important. I see, have found, and 
and I think clients are appreciating more so is really the scaling effect across the supply chain. And in this case, it's the employer channel is not just directly a monetization channel. It's an influence and advocacy channel upstream to other parts of the ecosystem. Love it. Since we're talking about, you know, employers and a channel and uptake, right? Ultimately, there's always a charge for all of this and people need to pay money. And I get into a lot of these discussions. Well, DTX is supposed to be there to get better access to care for certain modalities and therapeutic areas. And yet on the PDT side, it's sometimes almost as expensive as a drug that took X number of years, et cetera. So I'm curious what you're seeing out there on pricing itself from a range perspective, PDT, non-PDT, to the extent that you know a lot of this data is obviously private, and some of it is not, but would love to hear some of that from you. Mm, yeah, the pricing conundrum. Goodness, how do we build the adoption flywheel and not have price become an obstacle for that? And let's just say that I certainly have seen a fair number of non-paid pilots or a fair number of kind of compassionate use of uh, DTX, you know, I'll use air quotes. But these things are important, right? To get real potential benefit in the hands of patients. But when it comes to kind of commercial pricing across DTX, of course, it's a wide range. On the upper bounds of that, I would say that we see prescription digital therapeutics, for instance, that are often discrete prescription periods that might range from four to 12 weeks or so, and a discrete prescription list price that might be somewhere between $400 and approaching $2,000. So it's a pretty substantial range, but again, at the same time, we see prescription length that might be one month or three months. So kind of the factorial thing is somewhat intact there. We also see pricing lower than that. And of course, if you annualize these things, it becomes a bit of an art of math because refills of PDTs or you know additional prescriptions to support chronic use is determined by the physician, bring a different cost frame over time if your cost metric benchmark is meant to be annual versus you know a single treatment or course. And DTX particularly those products are sold more like software on, you know, per member per month or utilizing member per month or annual licenses and subscriptions and things like that. It's hard to really compare, right? Because you're now you're looking at, okay, well, what's the one month comparison or a three month comparison or annual comparison. But in general, what I see is DTX at the lower end of the PDT range and slightly lower than that. So somewhere maybe approaching, I would say, maybe 300 to $900 kind of a year, right? 300 to to $1,000 a year versus 400 to $2,000 per prescription. There may be concessions that to any stakeholder that may occur as well. This is not meant as a, you know, we hold Mike accountable for this. This is just to give our listeners a little bit of a range and an idea of where it's kind of landing as a whole versus a 99 cent download of an app, which is not a, really a comparison. I thought you were going for my wallet, Eugene. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe next time I see you, uh, you know, I'll buy you a drink, actually. You know, we've been focused very much in the U.S. market. And as Chandana said in our kind of kickoff episode last year, 2021 was the year of the DIGA 
I think it continues to add, and actually, I think to a certain extent, still, you know, a lot of eyes are on Germany. I know you've been looking at many different countries and their commercial frameworks as well. Anything that stands out, any comments on Diga itself, but also are you tracking, I don't know, Belgium, France, what other countries that you think are leading the way in this? I mean, how exciting. I am just so bullish. I think that the XUS environment is truly heartening. Frankly, in some ways, actually uh, pace setting. Sorry for the pun, but what's been done in Germany, I think is quite incredible early on, really just being out there with a transparent framework to allow developers to work in an environment to monetize health tech in a proper way. Of course, there's always room to continue to advance and improve upon assessment criteria and process to work your way through provisional coverage, for instance, in Germany versus permanent coverage as an example. But it's just amazing. It truly, truly is exciting to see Belgium's mHealth framework and some 30 DTXs working their way through the pyramid that's been so nicely designed there. And to actually see the first DTX now reimbursed in Belgium, to see more than 30 in Germany reimbursed. Of course, there's you know much discussion and it's no different in the US about prescription update and provider adoption. And we know that those adoption cycles are not fast, right? But now, the fact of the matter is it should be heartening to all of us. I'm, I'm just thrilled and delighted to see it, but it goes way beyond that. It's now France being very clear last year that, uh, you know, Viva La Diga and uh, we're going to move in that direction. And it's very clear that they've gone that way, right? Article 51 to 58. And uh, we're seeing movement and congratulations to uh, the Tillich team and Otisite uh, already seeing some coverage, but that's moving along. And my goodness, you know, the pan-European opportunity to see a framework to really embrace and allow health tech to address human health in the way that it should, it's amazing. Now that said, you know, there's some aren't moving so quickly. Asia PAC and you know Australia maybe a little bit stuck, not as much going on in South America. The UK should feel very proud and then we've got DTX reimbursed, of course, in Scotland and Wales and we see a nice NHS program in the UK focused in diabetes and weight management and overall kind of cardiometabolic. So the frameworks are developing around the world. It's truly, truly heartening. And there is increasingly more intercontinental sharing as well. We've seen Orca, for instance, come from the UK and plant roots in the US around health app assessment as well. And all of these things, I think, are really, really positive catalysts that uh, we all should feel really good about. Well, I love the Viva La Diga. That's the funniest thing I've heard today, at least. Not ever, but today. <laughs> We've heard quite a lot of noise on pairs, some of the announcements of not covering DTX. And maybe as we're closing in towards the end here, what advice would you give to payers as it regards to DTX? Yeah, from my experience, both directly with payers, having spent a wonderful couple of years at Pair Therapeutics and standing up the market access team and the payer interactions there for some time, I guess there's a couple of things. One, I mean, first and foremost is I think payers really need to let the merits of individual prescription digital therapeutics and digital therapeutics stand alone. 
They need to look at each one of these products for what it is in its population and what it brings to bear to deliver on a value proposition for both the payer and the payer's customers itself, right? Its members and its employers. But the other thing that I would say in that context, right, is that payers really aren't aware and they need to take the time to really educate themselves thoroughly. Not all are. It's a Pareto. We're all learning together. And there are some early movers and fast followers and some laggards and like every other market segmentation, same holds true here. But there's a lot of good intention and there's just a lot of brilliance I've found in my career. And I can call so many friends, so many smart minds in that space needing to do the right thing, but challenged by the prioritization that they need to manage themselves because Biopharma is doing a great job bringing therapeutics to market. And DTX is doing a great job now developing new therapeutics to next generation. And it's more than payers have ever had to deal with. And so it's hard for them, but they do need to monitor. They do need to look at DTX pipelines. They need to know what's on the horizon and have radar as to what's coming and not avoid it, embrace it, ask questions, learn, and really assess these things on their own merits in ways that are very similar to them. Knowing that there's a few things that are different, like, you know, it's a software and there are some other considerations like data security and privacy and things like that. But that's really what I would say to payers. Thank you. And I hope payers are listening. Well, Michael, we started with you and an interesting fact in your background. Would love to learn what actually gets you up in the morning every day. Yeah, for me, it's about helping the human condition. It goes back to where we started in our conversation. You know, I'm a small town guy aspiring to be a sports medicine specialist. And I'll never forget as a junior in high school, writing my uh, paper final on ergogenic aids and athletics, right? And it was drugs and sports. And it was kind of the adverse use of drugs to enhance human performance. And ever since then, it's been exactly the opposite. It's been just the possibilities of generations of therapeutics and ensuring that the right patient at the right time gets the right therapeutic for the right reason. And in the absence of that occurring all the time, I've got passion to get up in the morning. Amazing. Mike, thank you for joining us. And uh, I am sure our listeners enjoyed every word that was said by you. Thank you. What a pleasure, Eugene. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.